0: Welcome to episode 105 of Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me is the professor, Peter Van Onselen. Hello, Peter. Hey, Hugh. Good to be chatting. Yeah, look, that high viz that you're wearing there is um, uh, is pretty special, but I notice it's still got the, the, the tag on the back of it there, so you've obviously just got it from <laughs> Bunnings so you can join the Freedom Rallies in Melbourne.
1: A little bit like Matt Canavan with his tool uh, wall behind him where he does crosses from far in the North Queensland. I don't know if you've seen that, but Absolutely. not a single one of those tools looks like it's ever been used.
0: <laughs> the tools as a backdrop instead of as a foreground, one might argue. But, um, the, the, uh, you know, it's got ugly in Melbourne. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, just hearing the senior police talking about right-wing extremists Mm. being involved having infiltrated it the difficulty of combating this sort of stuff as we speak they're about to have another one they think going on today because it's leaderless therefore there's no one you can negotiate with it takes its own shape and form and at least in part according to the police uh, it involves uh, pretty dedicated anarchists as well as legitimate unionists this was Somewhat inevitable, given all the cross currents underway, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, it's it's not endorsing it in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, to say what I'm about to say, but I think it is feeding into what what you just said, Hugh. The the confluence of events in Victoria, in particular, really do lend themselves towards this kind of protest. And at the centre of that is the amount of time Victorians have spent in lockdown over the last. 300 days, You know, I think it's over 50% of that time has been in lockdown or thereabouts. Now, it's not to say that that's wrong, by the way. Uh, That's a debate that some people might have. I'm not having that debate. And to be perfectly honest, I don't really have a strong view on whether it's right or wrong. I think it's certainly been right some, if not all of the time, but it's probably been wrong to some extent, arguably as well. But the point is not really to have that debate. The point is that in an environment like that, with the stifling impact of it on people's mental health, what it does to people who are perhaps already radicalised or people who are, if you like, uh, in a position to be more easily radicalised, that kind of environment stokes that. Uh, And it also stokes other forms of discontent from all the different disparate groupings that seem to come together into this collective protest. And it's, it's in some ways, to me, surprising it hasn't happened in this way before now. Uh, but of course, now that it is happening, there's all sorts of ways you want to try to appease and to, to deal with it rather than stoke it. And that's when you then have the extra debates about what the hell is George Christensen doing weighing in on it? What is or isn't Dan Andrews doing in terms of fronting the media and talking about it? What do we think about this suspension of construction work? Is that helping or hindering or making worse a bad situation? It's, it's, it's complicated.
0: Oh, interesting to use the word radicalization there and that's a perfectly proper word to use under the circumstances but what strikes me and I, i'm not on the streets of melbourne is that as you talk about a confluence we are seeing uh people who are highly motivated to make uh you know an explosion of anger it mm. doesn't appear to me to be a general a genuine up out of the suburban houses out of you know. Uh, you know, if you like, middle Australia out on the street protesting. In fact, I th- I get the feeling that middle Victoria uh, is appalled and perhaps takes the view of the nurses who say that mm. uh, they can't believe people are protesting for the right to overwhelm their hospitals. Uh, you know, there's concerns about a super spreader event. So this goes down to, if you like, a kind of a perfect conditions for a whole bunch of people who may not normally talk to each other a great deal finding a common interest to cause some mischief
1: yeah i think i think that's right and that i think that's also right in relation to you know if you like uh, middle australia in this case victorians melbourneians being largely appalled by it rather than uh, sympathetic towards it or in any way inclined to participate in it Uh, that's i think true but i think it's also still true that You know, it doesn't take a large percentage of the population to be willing to protest in some form for various reasons to end up with a very big protest turnout. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Uh, it's, It's all part, though, I think, of the difficult situation that governments are in and by extension from the decisions governments make in those difficult situations, right or wrong, or right some of the time and wrong some of the time the impact it has on citizens. Uh, and Victoria has has felt this pandemic far more abrasively than anywhere else in the country. I mean, you and I are locked down in Sydney at the moment. It's been a long lockdown. It's got a long way to go, but it doesn't seem to have had the same impact because of the multiple lockdowns that Victorians have faced prior to now. And, and the other thing I would say is this. I, I do think that there would be more chance of larger chunks of that middle Australia participating in or being sympathetic for this cause, if firstly, if it wasn't as violent and as grotesque in some of what I've seen reported over the last couple of days, but also if it was overseas. I think the Australian political culture, as much as we have a larrikin culture, I don't think we have any more, even if we perhaps once did, have a strong protest zeal as part of our culture. Part of that, I think, has been brought on by legislative changes around protests. Part of it is a bit of a democratic complacency, I think, when it comes to the right to protest and what it means because we're a pretty robust democracy, even without it, we haven't had to fight for our democracy in the same way, for example, that you know the United States has, you know, for better and worse. Uh, and so I think all of those factors come into it a little bit as well. And, and I would say, just quickly, that they're good things that they don't come into it because... That, that is the kind of thing, and we've seen some of this in the US around Trump and around middle America and the challenges it faces, I think there is a risk that if your political culture lets that middle class, which is so dominant in society, have more sympathy rather than less for protests that can err on the side of grotesqueness or radicalization, that's obviously a dangerous thing for a democracy, as long as the complacency that I think we broadly have as a society isn't then taken advantage of to some extreme sense over time by those with power.
0: Mm. Well, we've heard the union movement of the ACTU being very uh, straight and saying this is not a union sanctioned protest. There might be construction workers and unionists who are involved in the protest. But uh, as the ACTU's Michelle O'Neill points out, it all started with an attack on a a union office. So they've been out quite proactively saying this isn't us and and, and we don't want to see the sort of protest activity we haven't really seen or if they if, if it's come I've missed it any similar level of clarity of message coming from the federal government um, it, you know Dan Andrews has been a little bit absent Without leave on the, on the subject, so um, might it be helped by some some clear statements from leaders? We understand the prime minister, of course, is overseas just at the moment, but uh, just the same, uh, where, where are the you know where are the grown ups in the room laying down their statements?
1: Yeah, I think the politicians have been found wanting here at state and federal level. I, I agree with that. Uh, look, you know, it's not to say that if you went through all the media clippings, you wouldn't find comments and condemnation from some federal and some state MPs out of Victoria. So state labor and, and federal coalition, you would, but you also find to my you know lens so far avoid when it comes to Dan Andrews. Uh, and when it comes to, yes, not just Scott Morrison, but I guess acting prime minister Barnaby Joyce in his absence. Why is that? Well, it's interesting that, you know, it being critical of both ends of that, I'm critical of Dan Andrews for not being more front and centre on this, given how often and regularly he chooses to be front and centre on other issues, uh, including, you know, having, you know, been one of the good guys, if you like, with the long daily briefings around COVID where he's been prepared to, to explain himself. He's, he's suddenly gone missing here. Equally on the government side, whilst, as you say, the prime minister's overseas, so you can understand why he's not turning his attention to it. The deputy prime minister or senior ministers in his absence, you know, Josh Frydenberg, for example, they should be doing that. Now, maybe Josh Frydenberg has and I've missed it. Uh, Barnaby Joyce, to my knowledge, hasn't. And perhaps that's because of the George Christensen thing, because there's a real split in the National Party over how to react to these protests as well as some other matters where we know the nationals are divided. Uh, And George Christensen is more ally than enemy when it comes to Barnaby Joyce.
0: Well, Christensen has already made his announcement. He's leaving parliament. He seems to Mm. see a career for himself out as a kind of a commentator. Uh, You know, after Dark on Sky might seem to be a potential future employer. Uh, And I say that not sneeringly. I mean, I think that may well be the path that he's seeking to follow on. He's sort of uh, supported this, called them freedom fighters and all the rest of that kind of thing. How much do you think that view... Holds so so we can knock it, but I'm I'm just wondering, and we're, and we're months away from an election. How much do you think that an anger over lockdowns, a sense of genuine, you know, also fueled a little bit by um, social media. Uh, Mm. aggravation I suppose agitation uh, inspired in part by some of the movements we've seen coming out of the United States that there is an undercurrent and it's not just in Victoria something to be mined successfully by populists to stir up as Christensen seems to be doing at the moment and support this kind of instinct. Yeah I I, I wonder what impact it
1: will have in any meaningful sense electorally at the federal election simply because maybe it spikes the vote for alternative candidates or even God forbid, the United Australia Party with all those Craig Kelly ads, although you feel like their credibility is being spent other than on the margins. Uh, Because when it comes to the major parties, it's hard to know which major party... Uh, people that have that inclination would penalise because they're sort of on the same page, essentially, when it comes to a lot of these issues around lockdowns and how to do things. So do they penalise Morrison because he's the incumbent or do they penalise Anthony Albanese because he's Labour-affiliated, in this case in Victoria, to Dan Andrews with some of the strictest lockdowns anywhere in the world? It's it's hard to really know where all of that lands. Can I say this, though? In, In a broader sense... And, you know, it's, it's really hard here because these protests, you know, I don't have any truck with them uh, and I certainly don't have any truck with the groups who were doing it, nor their tactics being violent In indeed uh, the way that they've targeted the media in particular. So let's just make that abundantly clear without any caveat. I'm more talking about the general principle to protest. It kind of worries me that we seem to be either all in in this way that is inappropriate or all out where we don't have the mass peaceful protests the way that we used to, I feel. Uh, and I think that's partly because people are more complacent. And I think it's partly because government legislation becomes stifling, particularly during the pandemic. And that kind of bothers me a little bit, you know. like Is, is it
0: not, at least in part, because people don't want to be part of a super event? Well, maybe, but to me,
1: frankly, that's not uh, reason. Uh, yeah the same reason that the black lives matter protests went forward i don't like the way right wingers try to draw comparisons between that and other forms of protest like this so i'm not doing that but the same reason that they were able to go ahead because the cause was worth it despite the super spreader risks is my general view about the right to protest despite all of this attempts to stifle protests with the excuse of the pandemic. I get that it's dangerous. I get how people feel about that. But I think it's probably less dangerous now than at any time previously during the pandemic, insofar as we're starting to get vaccination rates up. The right to protest to me, if done the right way, I just feel like I have to keep stressing that before someone listens and takes this out of context, done the right way uh, is, is absolutely paramount in any study of democracy that I've done over the last 20 years the problem is we we seem to be losing sight of that broadly as a people and as a leadership group in amongst parliamentarians legislatively and so forth and then when it does happen it happens like this which does more harm than good to the right to protest
0: it almost annoys me in that sense. I I wonder whether you've got me thinking there because I'm wondering whether the role of social media because part of a protest like like a peaceful process en masse to go down and 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 have your say about something that you care about could have been the war against Iraq could have been whatever, uh, and you see large masses of people who'll turn out to do things. Black Lives Matter was another one, but that social media has given us an outlet so that if we're peeved, we can sit in our pajamas with an iPhone and um, and yeah. blurt our fury off to the off to the world and whoever's listening, and you know put the world to rights. And that maybe that might have served what in a pre digital age we, we didn't have that option. The only way in which you could get together and agree that something wasn't acceptable was to physically get together and agree at what wasn't acceptable, unless you're going to write a, a stern word letter to the editor, you know, which is the kind of the yeah. or go to talk back radio, which was the other
1: avenue in the past. It, it, that's a really good point. I, I, think, I think social media has been a big influencer on the changes that I'm sort of looking at and somewhat worried about around protests. But I don't think it's been a change agent for the good, because the problem is, I think now on social media, you can, as you say, sit in your pyjamas and tweet away in anger. And it almost cheapens the value of protests, because everything become something that you're protesting about on social media because you don't have to get out of your pyjamas to do it and you can just tweet it and get on with your day Uh, or be angry without the process and the thought that goes into deciding will I or won't I turn out to a protest that is hopefully peaceful for a cause that you are perhaps passionate enough about to bother to do that. So it's done two things, hasn't it? On the one hand, it's cheapened what that protest is online that you see and read about on social media versus the physical protests, but then it's left the physical protests um, fewer and farer between and when they do turn up uh, being more radicalized potentially and, and therefore like this one, delegitimizing the whole concept of the right to protest. It, it's, it's an interesting area of study, frankly.
0: Yes, another indicator of uh, of social change. Well, the French are certainly protesting. We're using all tools that are available to them. We might have a chat about that in just a second. Let's take a quick break, Peter. Welcome back. This is episode uh, 105 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm uh, with uh, the professor, Peter Van Onselen, as always. Thanks for coming with me. I'm intrigued. Uh, Hit us on Twitter, if you like, if you think that having social media and, you know, the option of Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, has made you more comfortable with your avenues to protest. Uh, uh, I'd be interested to hear your views. But Mm. the French are um, continuing Le Grand sulk. You might say they may well have a good reason for the grand salt. That's extended my French, by the way. That'll be where it ends. <laughs> um, the prime minister is in the United States. This is an enormously important meeting on a whole range of issues. We've got a lot to talk about with the, sub, with the submarine decision. Um, let's start with the meetings that he's having and how he fixes it with the French, or does he not even bother? <laughs> well, I mean, start with Biden. Did
1: Biden remember his name when he met him over there? I can't remember. Uh, did he- Didn't he? did look like was it. it- Didn't look like it. Uh, Look, this is an interesting one because, I mean, look, I'm, yeah, I have to confess, I haven't delved as deeply into this as I normally would like to to offer a strong opinion on it as opposed to a somewhat superficial opinion. But at face value, it seems like there was good reason to move on from the French submarine contract because it wasn't a very good one. It feels like a large part of that fault lies with the Australians, not with the French, because we were refusing to embrace nuclear technology on their Barracuda-class submarine. So we wanted them to amend it to be a diesel uh, electric sub, which the amendment process to which was going to then diminish the value of the sub. Uh, Yet we then break that contract for all its faults, in no small part faults of our own, to then do the deal with the Americans For a nuclear sub and people might think that's good or bad i've got mixed opinions to be perfectly honest but at the very least towards the french the way that we did it was very much behind their back and left them irritated now maybe that's a price worth paying Uh, maybe it's a price worth paying but could have been done a little bit better to minimize the anger and then of course you've got the contagion of it across the eu now uh, with the attitude of the rest of Europe, which we're starting to see come to bear versus, you know, the deal done with the Brits as well as the Americans. So all up, you know, I, I sort of feel like it's Australia going with its traditional allies, um, but the French have been a very good ally for the most part for us as well. And they're understandably peeved, but maybe it's one of those wicked situations where we did what was best for us. Uh, so, you know, uh,
0: so here's, like here's said, a, here's a as they of, say, live with it. Such here's a couple life. of... Say la vie, I believe they say. Exactly. <laughs> um, so here's a couple of hot takes. We're now in a situation. There's a great saying, Gore Vidal is credited with it. Never offend your enemy in a small way. And we have offended <laughs> China in a small way. Um, if you're going to offend your enemy, do it in such an overwhelming way that they are completely on their ass and you've won the battle. But if you offend them in a small way, you give them ample opportunity to stew on that and then do you damage. So, um on trade, just on this element alone, uh, China has now got all kinds of motivations to damage us on trade. Europe also has all these <laughs> motivations to damage us on trade. Uh, it, you know, they, they were reluctant to get too much in with us because of our, our images of climate change laggard. Uh, And now they've got another very good excuse to punish us on trade as we're trying to negotiate a deal on that. I believe in the nuclear subs. I think the future is the nuclear subs. I believe that China is a risk. But it was interesting to see Joe Biden saying that we are entering a decisive decade. Well, we may be entering a decisive decade, but these subs are not going to be available to us within this decade. So we're entering a decisive decade with a weaker Uh, military capacity to manage them, particularly when it comes to submarines. And if you look at the people who analyze uh, what actually works in major conflict, submarines in the Asia Pacific area are enormously important because their stealth capacities, obviously, uh, because, you know, your enemy doesn't know exactly where they are. So it gives you all kinds of ways in which you can game and mess with the head. And that's why the Chinese are building submarines, nuclear submarines, nuclear powered submarines at the rate of uh, of just under one a year. So they're popping these into the water, uh, you know, like rabbits do poos. And um, and we are still talking about it. We, we're now in a situation where even if we were to go to, uh, you know, as has been suggested by Peter Jennings, at has and others that we just simply go and buy the first couple of subs off the assembly line in the United States. That's fine. But those ones that are coming off the assembly lines in the United States a Virginia class or whatever would otherwise have gone to the Americans. So there is no net increase in the number of subs that we could put into the Asia Pacific region to contain uh, China. They may have Australians on board instead of Americans. And anyway, uh, Australia doesn't seem to be talking about that as being an option. Maybe a lease of a sub at some stage, but the same thing applies. So we are actually uh, having... I, and I do take Jennings point of view. This is a result of provocation, military provocation, and bellicosity that has come from China, and it's under Xi Jinping, and it needn't have been this way. But because he's taken all these actions, these military first type actions, the militarising of the islands, uh, the daily incursions into Taiwanese airspace, testing out Chinese and, and degrading and wearing down Chinese air, uh, sorry, Taiwanese air capacity. Um, you know, this is going on all the time. This is China doing this. And and we're having to respond. But boy, boy, we're kind of playing in the sandpit. And they're, you know, they can see finish lines ahead.
1: Yeah, let me be really clear about this. I mean, I have long been a, a very loud critic of China because, bluntly put, they're not a democracy. And I don't like emerging superpowers that don't have any democratic tendencies nor any Desire for democratic tendencies, so I sit holding my breath until that other great populous nation of India, which does have undercurrents of democracy running through its veins, uh, till it rises up to be able to be a nice hold-off hold moment, you know, in the balance against China. And I hope that the United States is the world's largest and most powerful democracy, if not by population, by GDP, obviously, Uh, I hope that it can sustain itself until the time comes where India can take that over. And I hope India continues to thrive in its democratic ideals to do so against China. So I'm a big critic of powerful countries that are non-democratic, even if China isn't as expansionist as its military posturing might suggest it is. I know that there's debate about that. Either way, I have that view on China, just to be clear. Now, that's one thing. You then look at Australia. All your points about us being able to not build these subs or at least launch one for 20 years or so, we'll have to buy them off the Americans. There's no surplus gain there. I completely agree with that. That's, you know, in in Australian name badge rather than in the US flag badge, you know, little difference, right? Uh, That brings us to the crux to some extent of what this is about. On the one hand, it's about posturing by us in response to their aggressive posturing, showing our alliance to the US, and I guess Britain being part of it when they have little to do with our region anyway, is all part of that, that Anglo alliance and sending a message. Did we need to do that? Probably not. Was it worth doing or did the Americans expect it of us? Who knows? We're not behind those closed doors. But at its core, the the, the actual subs deal, all that's really going on here because it's not going to help us in the next 10, even 20 years, when this is going to potentially be a hot issue. What it's really about is just manufacturing support <laughs> for Adelaide uh, to build subs there rather than just to keep buying them from the Americans or buying them from anywhere else. We, it, it's about state subsidised manufacturing assistance for Adelaide and an equivalent into Perth, if that's where they ultimately then get serviced. Uh, it has long been thus that is a core ingredient here. It's an economic play, every bit as much, if not more so in some respects, as a military play. And that's even if you think that having the nuclear technology is a good thing for us to do. Because if we last 50 years, I mean, you and I won't, but if we last 50 years um, with wherever we look then, having that nuclear capacity, depending on how it's done, probably is a good thing for Australia, as long as we last till then. But there's all these other factors at play, before then. Uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall to be able to know the extent of for, forward planning around this uh, and how this came about and who suggested it and who was taking the lead and what some of the u-turns were in the negotiation and the decision-making process and what some of the dead ends were and the dialogue, all things that would we will never know between the Americans, the British, and the Australians. I would love to know all of that, how much the politicians versus the bureaucrats were involved to piece together a better understanding of what was really at play here.
0: Well, it's interesting that the Sydney Morning Herald or the the Fairfax Papers uh, ran an article immediately afterwards after the announcement saying, basically mapping out how this was all Scott Morrison's uh, initiative. Uh, He invested himself in it from early on in the piece uh, well before the then Defence Minister Linda Reynolds was then brought on board after it had a poke around with it, etc. So uh, this is all his uh, his fingerprints all over it. But it well, does that's concerning, me- though, isn't
1: it, Hugh? I mean, if, if this was Scott Morrison's decision making, you know, the former head of Tourism Australia making these big play decisions. I mean, God help us. I hope. Well,
0: he's the prime God,
1: it, it I hope to it. God that the decision making was a bit deeper than that.
0: Well, it, it does remind me that of the twenty fourteen uh, federal budget where. Um, Tony Abbott had just become prime minister. It was his first budget. Joe Hockey was the treasurer. And so Hockey comes down with this... uh, you know, totally unexpected budget with all these kinds of new initiatives that hadn't been brought to the election, et cetera, and people going, well, you know, that was stuff we didn't expect. And the journos in the press gallery were all being briefed. Well, of course, it's Joe Hockey's budget, but, you know, the prime minister was behind it every bit, you know, the, his fingerprints all over. He's in. And then it, when it turned out that people said, hang on, almost every promise you made before the election just months ago, you have now broken in this budget. It's an utter stinker. You can't get half of it through the House and the Senate anyway. And it started to Crumble and, and really it was the marker beyond which um, the Abbott prime ministership never recovered mm. and, uh, and suddenly didn't have so many PR flags running around the place saying that it was Tony Abbott's idea. So um, <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder how long it will take before people start saying, oh, you know, <clears throat> that bit about it all being uh, Scott Morrison's idea. Well, look, there are others involved as well, of course. It wasn't. I, I, I do truth think though, that in it? 20 years, I, I take your point, in 20, 30 years, if we have a fleet, of nuclear submarines that are capable, you know, and we haven't there hasn't been a war in the in the interim. We will be a safer country uh, um, as a result of that because only a little bit, of course. By then, the, the Chinese submarine fleet will probably run into the hundreds, and we'll have eight. But yeah. um, it does it it you know the theory for a middle power like Australia is we can't defeat China or any other you know superpower in a in a in a full on war. But our, our plan is just to have strong alliances and to make it plain that off our own sovereign capacity, were they to come and have a crack at us, we could make it not worth their while we could do enough damage so that in their planning, they go, "Oh, let's leave Australia alone, they're too hard. But and there's I another argument to that. Down the
1: track. I, sorry to interrupt, but I, like, I, I tend to land in that space too, just to be clear. But just as the devil's advocate, which I think is also a legitimate argument, is you sort of, and, but values come into this because we do have strong democratic ideals and values and China buttresses up against that. And you can't ignore that uh, despite what I'm about to say. So that, that's important. But, you know, the flip side argument is, well, you know, we could essentially stay neutral, lend support, Um, to the causes of the democratic nations that are big enough to stand up to China. America now, hopefully, India by then, um, but otherwise just stay neutral. And China, therefore, just continues to trade with us and do their thing with us, probably leaves us alone because it's all just too hard. They they don't need to invade us. Uh, They just need to be able to continue to trade with us. That's the alternative position and lots of democracies the world over have done that it's not like the americans have got a great track record by the way since world war ii in their decision making around who to go to war and when with but but uh it does mean that you are parking as i said as a caveat to start with you're you know you're you're putting your muscle behind your democratic ideals you're essentially saying we're going to have a bob each way and it's a bit unsavory frankly when we know that China is just a god-awful regime, let's be frank about it.
0: I think one of the things that we're seeing is that the United States, Trump got onto this. Uh, he was the first guy to get onto this and get it, and it is now understood by everyone, is that the United States population has, is tired of fighting everyone else's wars. Uh, you know, it, it gets its ass handed to it over, over a dusty dump called afghanistan let alone against a superpower you know they they, they were caned in in vietnam that people look at it and go why do we fight all these things so that notion that um, we're seeing a relatively weaker united states relative to china a relatively uh less interested global policeman and why should they this would be an argument in australia in, in the united states and i totally sympathize with it why should they pay in blood and treasure, to be the kind of defender of freedom, if we're not willing to do it ourselves, that is a totally reasonable argument, in my view. Absolutely, Trump took it that is. To, to NATO and it took it elsewhere. So, um, great,
1: great, great point, Hugh, because that—that is a real thing. I mean, it's not just about your ideals, which—which which I think is almost enough that we need to be involved. But yeah, that risk of America going back into its shell is—is uh, is very, very real, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 line which was used to devastating effect was. There are countries in the world who are willing to fight uh, for freedom uh, down to the last American. And, <laughs> and that's true, you know, and we, we're too good friends with the Americans for that to be us. We're not going to bludge. Those are not Australian values. So uh, we're going to have to do a bit more heavy lifting. I just suspect it's going to take us a long time to be in a position to do too much. Um, we're out of time. And just as we speak, uh, Dan andrews has come up saying that he uh, thinks these uh, protests are insulting and um so he's speaking out against the protesters uh, good we, we started this <laughs> with him being somewhat absent he's less absent so he's in the fray uh P. And one Earth, very quick uh,
1: final one very quick final thought yes. you. i'm sure you agree with this but you know christian Porter had to step down from the front bench he's done it he probably has to leave parliament now where the the laws and the rules say that he should or shouldn't, uh, whether they're open to interpretation or not, even if they don't mean that he has to, you would have to think that that's something that has to be looked at going forward so that that can't be allowed to happen, that you can have a blind trust like that and stay as a backbencher, much less as a member of cabinet. And just finally, if the Privileges Committee looks at it, I think Russell broadbent the Liberal MPs on that don't take it as a certainty that he just toes the party line. He's been a bit of a moderate liberal who's been prepared to stand against his own party from time to time. So that's just one to watch.
0: Absolutely. And excellent points. PVO, great as always. Good to chat. Talk soon. You've been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.